This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is um, Evangelicals in Israel. And I have with me three guests, two of whom are professional pollsters, which um, you probably have to think about what that category is, but we'll um, let you do that as as we proceed. Uh, and then Mitch Glazer, who's done the table many times before. Uh, Mitch is president of uh, Chosen People Ministries, and then I have Kareel, and I may I may um, botch the pronunciation of these names, so I'll do the best I can. Is it Booman? Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. Dean of Graduate Studies at Stonehill College in Easton, Massachusetts. And Mordecai Imbari, who is at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke, in the Department of Philosophy and Religion. So welcome to Kareel and to Mordecai, who I know is Modi, so I probably will do that as we um, engage. Um, Kareel and Modi were our pollsters who helped uh, Chosen People Ministries and the Alliance for uh, the Peace of Jerusalem do some polling on issues related to evangelicals in Israel. But before we go to that topic in particular, um, I want to talk about polling in general. So uh, my normal first question on the table, it's kind of a a baptismal question, is um, so how did nice guys like you get into a gig like this? Um, how did you How did you all manage to uh, get into polling? And you all were colleagues when we were doing this, right, at the University of North Carolina, Pembroke. So that's an, another point to kind of make people aware of. So how did you get into, into polling, Modi? Okay, so um, there are several answers to this question. And so first of all, I say that I, I came to to the, um, the Pembroke, North Carolina, about 12 years ago. And I had some general knowledge about evangelicals and uh, what they're thinking about Jews. And uh, because I'm a religious studies professor, yeah, so I, I need to know those things. And uh, and I was speaking with my neighbors, basically. Many of them were evangelicals. And then I realized, you know, there are multiple answers to these questions why evangelicals have interest in, uh, in Israel. And it's kind of still my interest. And eventually I was able to speak with a person who was the leader of a foundation. And when I told him, you know, many times Jews don't really understand what stands behind evangelicals and what their motivations are. And so he suggested, why don't you, <laughs> why don't you study that? Why don't you poll them? And this was the idea, the first idea that, uh, this is the first time that I had this idea. But I'm a, I'm a religious, I'm an expert in theology. I, I don't know how to do, how to run surveys. So this is where I teamed with Kirill, and I suggested the idea, and this is how it started. Now, next to us, Mitch was doing his own studies, and at some point, we uh, the, the two paths collided. But uh, Mitch was doing his own research, and we were doing our own research more or less at the same time. At some point, we said, why don't we collaborate? Okay, and Creel, how did you? So, so Modi pulled you into this. Is that is that the short answer to the question? Indeed, it is. Uh, Modi and I have talked uh, for for quite some time about uh, doing some sort of a joint project, uh, maybe teaching a course together, maybe doing a study abroad. I come from a political science world, Uh, you know, particularly my focus was on ethnic conflict. And of course, Israeli-Palestinian dispute figures very prominently into that. And so I had some interest in in the subject area, but um, I am predominantly international relations and comparative politics guy. I study mostly post-communist world. So in 2017, when he he approached me with this project, I really thought, well, this is going to be 
kind of a one-off project. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll help him design the survey, run the analysis, and then I'll get back to studying post-communist uh, constitutional courts. Uh, and lo and behold, right, uh, almost five years later now, and uh, we are still focused on Christian Zionism. Yeah, interesting. Um, so uh, did you, I, I, I'm asking a question I don't know the answer to, uh, which is something a lawyer is not supposed to do, but when I'm not a lawyer, and so I will do it. Did you guys both um, grow up in Israel, or are you, have you been in America all your life? What's, what's the biographical background on that question? Modi? Yeah, I grew up in Israel. I was born and raised in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And I moved to the United States in 2007, I want to say. Not so long, I don't remember. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I am an Israeli by, by birth. And actually, today we are celebrating Israel's independence. Day. Yes, happy Independence Day, although we're not supposed to time tag our recording, but that's okay. For Israel, we'll do, we'll do it. Um, and. Uh, so, so Modi, when you when you teach uh, in the area that you, what kind of courses do you teach? Yeah, I teach classes on Jewish studies and also uh, Islamic studies and Middle Eastern studies. My expertise is in you know, fundamentalism or Jewish uh, religious radicalism. You know, say something like that. So, yeah. Okay. In Korea, um, uh, did you grow up in Israel, or you've been in the states all your life? Uh, no, I actually grew up in Soviet Union, um, oh. and uh, my family immigrated to the United States when I was almost 15 years old uh, to a small town of Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, and uh, uh, 28 years later, uh, I, I guess uh, I guess I am more American now than I am uh, Soviet. Uh, you know, <laughs> interesting. <laughs> Yeah, Asheville's a beautiful place, one of my favorite places sure in the country. Um, and what yeah. do you teach? Uh, so I, I'm a political scientist by trade. Um, I, I do quantitative analysis, and substantive areas of focus for me are ethnic conflict, uh, comparative judicial politics, and uh, increasingly so, the study of Christian Zionism through survey research. Okay, so Modi told us how he got into into uh, doing bowling work, and it was through curiosity of a particular question. Uh, what about you, Kirill? How did you get into polling? So uh, I've done some uh, some work with uh, um, survey data uh, for my dissertation and for subsequent research on constitutional courts. Uh, but I haven't designed my own surveys until we teamed up on our first survey that went out in 2018. So that was the first uh, stab for both of us at uh, designing the survey ground up and uh, uh, implementing it or fielding it, as they call it. Well, I have to thank you guys for teaching me about polling, because uh, what I know about polling, I've learned from watching you all. And uh, uh, which has uh, worked well for me in the areas that I teach. I do a lot of D-men supervision, and most D-men dissertations involve polling of one sort or another. So I'm going to ask one technical question just to justify this whole line of questioning, and that is, what's the difference between a qualitative and a quantitative um, survey? And Kirill, I'll ask you that uh, to, to kind of help sort that out for us. Uh, sure. And and so both are types of data, quantitative and qualitative. Uh, quantitative data is statistical data. It's uh, easy to uh, transpose real-world facts into numbers. Qualitative data tends to be more in-depth. It tends to be more archival, uh, more descriptive. Uh, sometimes it's easy, uh, m- more difficult to transpose it into concrete number to quantify it, so to speak. Uh, It is uh, uh, more anecdotal in some respects, thicker. Uh, Immanuel Kant uh, referred to qualitative research as thick descriptions, Mm -hmm. and that's the way I tend to think of it. So uh, quantitative tends to be the survey that you might get on a internet about how you feel about the place that you visited or something like that, and you're 
filling in bubbles or checking boxes, that kind of thing. And the, and Correct. And each one of those bubbles has an assigned value. Oftentimes have an, uh, a specific set of answers that you can give, whereas a quantitative is more interview-based oftentimes and, and more interactive, if I can say that. That's where the depth comes from. Is that a fair contrast, Modi? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so the stuff that we did for you all, and then I'm going to pull Mitch in and talk about how he got involved in the mix here. Um, the, the, the surveys that you did for us were primarily um, quantitative. Is that fair? And, the, and there were a touch of qualitative um, elements in it. Is that a fair way to describe what we did uh, in these surveys? Either one yeah. of you. Yeah, that would be correct. Um, uh, predominantly, we focused on quantitative analysis of that data. However, in our um, research on young evangelicals in 2021, we asked uh, them to respond in depth to some open-ended questions where they actually wrote out an answer, and that provided for more um, qualitative kind of in-depth uh, content assessment of, of what these folks were saying. So a quantitative approach would, you know, just ask where someone is, if I can say it that way, and give them some options, that kind of thing. But a qualitative question tends to put, push a little bit, okay, why did you answer it that way? Why, what's the rationale, the reasoning for the choice that you made? Is that another good distinction to be making? Uh, it is. Um, I, I think there's another way to sort of think about the differences between qualitative and quantitative. So quantitative is really good at identifying the relationships that exist in real world, that the two factors go hand in hand, whereas qualitative is really good at process tracing. It allows us to show how exactly one factor impacts the other. I see. Very good. Very helpful. Okay, Mitch, so let's join this story. Uh, Modi said earlier that you all collided. I'm not sure that would be the metaphor I would choose to describe what happened, although that might have been the effect of the, uh, of the uh, explosion of activity that came as a result. But, um, uh, but talk about how, how one, how did, you, how did you find Modi and Kareel? That's the first question. And then the second question is, um, what was the project that you were hoping uh, them to help you with? Yeah, so we, we didn't collide, we, we converged. Okay. And, 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 and it brought about a, a great synergy for a number of reasons. I believe that uh, Moti and Kareel, even though they had some help from someone named Gordon Bird at the beginning, that they had a little bit of a feel for evangelicals, plus there's, they were living in North Carolina, so that gave them a leg up also. Uh, but still, uh, it's a very particular area of with a lot of different streams and beliefs and um, aspects to the culture even. And so um, I lead a Jewish ministry, and I'm a Jewish believer. And uh, so Moti Kareel and I have that in common, as well as with you, Daryl. So there's a common Jewish experience, which is nice to have, because there are some underlying attitudes we don't have to explain all the time to one another. Uh, we, we understand them. I mean, why are Jewish people aloof from Christianity? We've never even spent that much time talking about it. Uh, we 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 understand that that is historically and sociologically the case, and um, and so there was a lot for me to try and gently navigate uh, Moti and Kareel through in better understanding the nuances of evangelicalism and understanding evangelical theology, particularly on areas of eschatology and other matters, and. Uh, but, you know, they were very quick learners, and so it was pretty easy. Um, but we sort of in, sort of drank from each other's experiences. Uh, the second thing was we had done a fairly major survey of evangelicals uh, and, Israel, and their views of Israel and the Jewish people that was implemented by Lifeway Research, the Southern Baptist Research Arm. And... Uh, we had uh, over 2,000 people respond to a survey, and it was a good survey. And um, what happened was is Kareel and Moti came up with the idea to do a similar survey, and 
And the leader of Lifeway uh, told them, well, something similar was just done. You might want to talk to these people. And while you're at it, you might want to see if they can provide you with some funding. And uh, so we were very, very happy to help uh, Moti and Kareel with some uh, matching grants and some funding. Uh, it wasn't a lot of money. I must say, it's been uh, the bargain of the ages for me because we got for very little money. We got so much uh, experience and expertise that it's been a uh, I've learned tons. I feel like I've been in this school of survey understanding also for the last number of years. And and so uh, it, it was a pretty happy partnership. And uh, we had a lot of the same concerns. I think underlying one of the concerns was we would like to see more people like Israel and Jewish people. And uh, I mean, after all, that's we, we would all think that's a good thing. Of course, it's very nuanced once you enter into the politics and the conflicts involved with that and how uh, evangelicals feel about these things. And so we've done quite a number of surveys uh, over the years, and I can't always remember who implemented which survey, uh, although I, I did do a recent paper on it, which which I think I, I, I got it straight uh, in terms of the chronology and who initiated what. I think uh, one of the most telling surveys that we did was a pre and post Gaza war survey. And it was not just pre uh, and post war, it's also pre and post Netanyahu, uh, who is very popular among evangelicals. And we, um, the surveys were designed, and I'm not sure if we helped design it or paid for it or. I, I still can't remember totally, but we but we were, we definitely felt like we were collaborating together on it, and uh, and and basically, uh, we discovered a lot about what uh, intuitively some of us have felt strongly over the last 15, 20 years, and that is that traditionally older evangelicals are very supportive of Israel. We now not we now have more of the reasons, more of the regions where they're more supportive, and we have a ton more information. But fundamentally, we knew that older evangelicals were more supportive of Israel than their children and their grandchildren, and uh, and we're concerned about the future of Israel and the Jewish people and evangelical support because evangelicals tend to uh, uh, be loyal Americans and and vote. And uh, they tend to um, probably be more on the conservative side to some degree. Now, we've now analyzed all of that. We can tell you more about it. But we felt it's really important if we have the information that can prove that younger evangelicals are less supportive of Israel. And here's why. Here's where they're getting their information. Here's how they feel about what their pastors are teaching. Here's where they're where they're at theologically and what they understand and what they know. Uh, we feel that uh, we can now, by analyzing it, which Kirill and, and Moti were superb at uh, sticking to, the, they, they stayed in their lane uh, of, of really in-depth analysis. And people like me, even though I'm, of course, very interested in the analysis, at the end of it all, I'm a do something about it kind of person because that's my nature and my position. And so you can't, you can't do anything intelligently unless you have good information. And so we've got great information and uh, we created the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem, which will hopefully be a way for evangelicals to be more supportive of Israel and, uh, and take a stand against hatred of all uh, Palestinians and Muslims, which to some degree is, I mean, it's an extremist position, but some people uh, lean that way. And uh, I think we have some good information on how to balance that out. So we formed the Alliance for the Peace of Jerusalem. And then uh, we've been able to put together some conferences. But I think one of the most exciting things that maybe Moti and Kirill will talk about is the book that they're putting together based upon so many of these surveys that will be published by Oxford University Press. And so all of this data will be 
compiled into an academic book that I think is going to have lasting and tremendous impact, not on only on evangelicals, but hopefully on the Jewish community and all those who have a deep concern for Israel and the Middle East. So that's that's how we began. So the question that we were looking at and uh, examining was, um, how do evangelicals view Israel and how does that break down uh, generationally, et cetera, even regionally, in some cases in relationship to certain uh, uh, to certain uh, uh, denominations and that kind of thing. The one thing we haven't done that I know we're thinking about doing is um, the reverse. Uh, how do Jews think about evangelicals and and what what's that relationship, which is also fascinating? But we haven't gone there yet. So um, so let's let's focus in on what we have done and talk a little bit about the results of the survey. Tell us a little bit about the book. Um, now, it's an academic book, so I'm not necessarily thinking that the title is going to be, you know, earth-shattering or something like that, but does the book have a title yet? Um, and, uh, and then we'll talk about the contents of the survey. Yeah, well, uh, I think, well, I don't, it's Christian Zionism of the, in, the, in the 20th century, 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah this Zionism in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah. There you go. There you go. And, and actually, descriptive. How, many how many surveys have been done? Because I'm. Uh, it is it is it two, three? How many have we done? For the for that specific book, we are using three surveys. Uh -huh. We already conducted the fourth survey that uh -huh. uh, still needs to be you know critically uh, analyzed and published as an article or academic article. Or, but um, uh, yes, yeah, so we have conducted so far four surveys, you know, including one that Mitch has done, and we all, we analyzed, but we did not uh, write the survey or pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so um, obviously, you did one and you said, oh, man, uh, we could ask more. So kind of what's that, what's that sequence? Where did we start and where did it end up? So we started with a general survey of the entire evangelical community. We conducted it in 2018. And um, after we uh, conducted this survey, we noticed with the sample that we have that younger evangelicals, ages 18 to 29, do not follow the pattern of older ones. We saw there's some discrepancy in that, uh, in that age group. So our concern was to try to figure to focus on that age group. And so eventually we got to that age group and we surveyed them in 2021. In between, uh, Mitch and Chosen People Ministry have conducted this, uh, their own survey with evangelical pastors, which is very interesting research. And we are very grateful that uh, you, you allowed us to use the data, the raw data, and to analyze it ourselves. And we saw some very interesting um, uh, this, we saw some trends, interesting trends between premillennial and um, amillennial be beliefs that uh, we 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 realized that are very significant in understanding the evangelical mindset, and so uh, we are now pushing and asking on those on those things more and more because we realize this is one of the key issues to understand what's going on with evangelical. So, so the way to say this is there was a general survey. In between, there was this pastoral survey, and then there was another general survey, right? Or was the third one was general young as well? So there was a general survey, pastoral survey, and young evangelical survey. Young evangelicals focused on, and now you're you're preparing and working on zeroing in on the on those answers that came from the third survey. Is that is that a fair way to characterize what the fourth one's going to do? So actually, the fourth one is already done. Uh, okay. It's another general survey, uh, and it will be a part of either the second book manuscript or a set of articles that we will do. We're now focusing on our fifth survey. Uh, this one will push the boundaries a little bit outside of the Protestant community uh, and consider Catholics. I see. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. 
I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. So, um, wow. Uh, so there's a cycle that, that you get a set of answers and you go, oh, man, all that does is raise more questions. Absolutely, it's it's like been going down the rabbit hole. You know, the, the more you <laughs> dig, the further the further you. So realize you're still you suspended in midair. Is that what you're telling me? You haven't landed yet. <laughs> no. There, there's a there, there, guys. There's a group called Towards Jerusalem Council Two, based on Acts 15, which was Jerusalem Council One. But Towards Jerusalem Council Two is a global group started by a friend of mine, a Messianic rabbi. Maybe you already know about it. And uh, this group uh, includes Catholics and Orthodox, as well as Evangelicals and Messianic Jews. And we're talking about involvement with Catholics at the highest level. And uh, there, it's, as you all know, there was Cardinal Lustiger, who was a French Jewish uh, Catholic, who was very influential. But there's been quite a few others uh, also, both those that are Jewish, some in Israel, actually, and some in other places. And if if you would like me to introduce you to a few people that could connect you with some of the major things that the Catholic Church is now developing in relationship to their views on the Jewish people in Israel, I can do that. I think you'd find some of these people to be absolutely fascinating. And I think they'd find you because, you know, this is a real skill set, being able to do what the two of you do. And uh, and so I think they would find you very interesting, too. So I can so, broker so that if you want. this is a sociological look at, at these questions and kind of where the state of a state of uh, the evangelical community is in relationship to Israel. So now uh, th- we ended up having a long teaser here because now I can finally ask the question, so where is the evangelical community when it comes to Israel? So it's split. It's okay. split. And, and, and so um, to, to answer your question and also to give a little bit more detail about what makes our work not just slightly different, but significantly different from other work on foreign policy attitudes. It's typically when we when folks study foreign policy attitudes, they look at uh, demographics, they look at age, they look at income, education, so on and so forth, uh, and they look at political attitudes. They don't seriously consider religion, and there hasn't been a truly robust study of religious determinants of foreign policy positions. Mm-hmm at least not a quantitative one. And that's where our analyses, not just uh, the first one, but really all of the subsequent analyses, uh, provide additional insights. We very seriously consider the role of uh, eschatology, the understanding of what happens in the end times, and how that might impact support for Israel and attitudes towards uh, the Israeli-Palestinian dispute, as well as toward the two respective communities, uh, Israelis, uh, predominantly Israeli Jews, and uh, the Palestinian Muslims. And so what we found was that there were, there were several splits in the data. There were several kind of splits in the evangelical community in 2018 survey that uh, were puzzling to us at first. Uh, one, as Moti pointed out, was age. We found that there was a, a very substantial difference in attitudes about Israel and uh, the Palestinians between young evangelicals and older generations, those that are 30, uh, 30 years of age or older. We also found this, uh, this distinction between various eschatological views, uh, premillennial uh, dispensationalists in particular, those that believe that there are certain stages 
that must take place before the second coming of Jesus Christ, before the general resurrection, before the end of times, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They were the most supportive of Israel, whereas post-millennial and amillennial attitudes tended to be much less supportive, uh, and in some cases very critical uh, of uh, Israel uh, vis-a-vis the Palestinians. What we also found was um, uh, a fairly surprising level of ambivalence. There were a number of uh, evangelical and born-again respondents that didn't really feel strongly one way or the other. And so we really wanted to understand why that is the case. Uh, It wasn't a matter of not having the knowledge because we gave the respondents a don't know option. So those that felt like they didn't know responded that way. But um, many of them felt relatively lukewarm about the questions. Uh, They didn't want want to pick the side. And so when we conducted a follow-up survey with young evangelicals, we wanted to pick apart not only what young evangelical views are, but why exactly they hold those views. And so uh, both our 2018 general survey, as well as the survey on the attitudes of pastors in regard to replacement theology and eschatology, really informed a set of questions that uh, we included in our young evangelical survey. And and Mitch was uh, very instrumental, as well as you, Daryl, in designing that eschatology question in a way that young people could really understand what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not easy to ask uh, these sorts of questions, and uh, it, it took several revisions of the survey to really get uh, to the bottom of it. And one of yeah. the really interesting things that we did find in that survey was that uh, uh, not only are young evangelicals um, less supportive of Israel uh, and more supportive of the Palestinians, but that that portion of the evangelical community is rapidly changing and increasingly growing distant from the previous generations. Okay, now, um, the Modi, the, the next I question, to, go ahead. I add something to what Okay, go ahead. I say the opposite. So everybody knew that there is something with evangelical ideology that draws them to support Israel, yeah? And so we were able to dig on this ideology of, of premillennial, uh, postmillennial, all those things. But what we found very significant that there's also social settings that makes Israel, uh, evangelicals supporting Israel. So it's just the opposite. It's not, not necessarily supporting Israel because of the ideology, uh, but because other things, like, for example, so- socialization, like people are talking about Israel, hearing people. We, we realize that when pe- the people that come more of- often to church, those who are the churchgoers who come every Sunday and is a, tend to be more supportive of Israel from those who identify as evangelicals but come less to church, yes? Mm. And so we found all kinds of social um, uh, indicators to tell us who would be more supportive, who would be less supportive, and so on. so So we felt really great about that finding because it indicated that socialization matters, that, you know, the social dynamics in which you kind of spend time in uh, really help explain whether you support Israel or not. And then in 2020, uh, I'm sorry, 21, when we conducted the Young Evangelical Survey, we actually found something completely opposite. We found that young evangelicals um, were less likely to support Israel if they socialized with pro-Israeli evangelicals. And so we kind of puzzled at first as to what that might indicate, why we would have this counterintuitive finding. Um, and, you know, we believe that it reflects this sort of, you know, almost teenage angst, this desire to stand against the establishment, to hold a contrasting view hmm. to one uh, that has been offered uh, by the older generations. And indeed, when we look at some of the open-ended responses, perhaps, Moti, you can kind of talk a little bit about that, we could see that rift, uh, you know, uh, emerge, and we can explain that rift better. Kareel, you, you, you're going in the direction I was going next, which is, obviously, the question is, you've got the split, why Why do you think you have it? What's going on here? What are the factors that, that play into it? Um, and, and so... Um, uh, so, so explain this counterintuitive one because that's stra- that <laughs> hanging out with pro-Israeli people makes you less pro-Israeli. Am I hearing that right? Especially if they're older. 
Especially if they're older. Especially if they're younger. Younger. Or younger. <laughs> explain that. Ex- explain that one to me, Carol. I obviously missed that one. <laughs> so, so 2018 data shows that socializing with pro-Israel evangelicals improves or increases one's support for Israel. When we focus in in our 21 survey on 18 to 29 year old evangelicals only, so only on this young uh, uh, young evangelical cohort, there the result is completely the opposite. The more you socialize with pro-Israel evangelicals, the less you support Israel. And so, um, and and now Morty can 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 tell us what what those young evangelicals actually say. Because not only did we ask them why they supported Israel or why did they support Palestinians or why they supported neither, but we also asked them to put their social scientists' hats on and think about why surveys find that young evangelicals are less supportive of Israel than older evangelicals. So we actually asked them that question outright, and they had to write their answer. I'm so glad Moti has the answer for this. So now we got, and the survey said... Modi? <laughs> you know, it's a it's a complex picture. There's mm-hmm. many explanations, and I could say I, I want to say just want to take it one step before and say that when we asked evangelicals that said that they support Israel, we asked them why do you support Israel? Most the majority of the answers to this question came in the realm of the Abrahamic covenant, meaning they support Israel because. It says in the Bible, you know, that Israel is God's people. And these are typically the words that they've been using. Israel is God's people. These are kind of like the combination of words that they've been used, that they've used uh, to explain this. And even if they use different terminology, and even if they use, like, say, political arguments, it it tends to draw on on this argument. It relates to the Bible. So now we know for sure that uh, what uh, when among evangelicals, young evangelicals who say that they support Israel, the reason rela- relates to the Abrahamic covenant in that way or another. And we asked those who said that they support the Palestinians. And there was a big group, about one third of the service, and they support the Palestinians. Um, something interesting that we saw with that is that a, a, a big portion of them said that when we asked them, why do you say that you support the Palestinians? A big portion said, I don't know. What does it mean? It means that it's in their gut feelings. They think that they need to support the Palestinians. They can't really rationalize it in very clear terms. They can't really give a good explanation why they support Palestinians over Israel. But they feel it's the right thing to do, the right, the right choice to make. Um, and those who did give an explanation, it mostly was related to social justice because Palestinians are victims, because Israel oppresses the Palestinians. So this is kind of like a, the, the typical answer uh, that they gave. And, um, and the, the, for the second question was, how do you explain it? So uh, the main explanation is that there is just a generational difference between the two groups. Oftentimes they stress that um, their parents and grandparents grew up in an informational environment that didn't have a lot of diversity of opinions, Hmm. that it was limited sources and it was predominantly pro-Israeli coverage. Whereas now with uh, the widespread availability of information from a variety of different sides and sources, they're able to form a much more comprehensive picture, which leads them in turn uh, to support Palestinians or to be more critical of Israel. So that was a, another really interesting uh, part is that they they highlighted the importance of uh, liberalization of the media space, that uh, the space has grown, it has expanded, and that has allowed people uh, diversity of opinions. That uh, has that, that's that's a very interesting observation. I was at a meeting last week in which a younger person was making the point that uh, what the older generation, how the older generation sees the world, is not how they see the world, mm-hmm. and um, and and the reasons for that, I, which I found a, a, to be a fascinating remark. In the back of my head, there's the also this factor, which I think may impact it, and that is 
The older generation has some memory of how Israel came into being and, uh, and what was involved in that and Israel being under a lot of pressure from its neighbors for its existence, which made Israel more, if I can put it this way, the victim in that environment. And that has apparently, in a lot of people's minds, flipped. And, uh, and so that has impacted the way different generations tend to view things. And, of course, with the review, another thing that's happening is with the review of what really happened in 1948 and 1967 that also has come along down the pike, uh, that has complicated, um, at least for younger people, the understanding of what really happened back there, which was something they didn't see or feel, as the elder generation perhaps did. So um, I wonder if that's part of what's going on. Mitch? I think you could take it even one step further back, Daryl, because um, the people who um, the boomers were raised by people who had gone through the Holocaust. Some of the, these American soldiers who were Christians liberated Dachau or they ended up in Auschwitz after uh, after the war. And um, many men, there was actually quite a movement and uh, Modi and Kirill, you may not be fully aware of this, but there was a tremendous movement of, there was tremendous event, growth of evangelicals in the post-World War II period. There was a tremendous growth of what we call missionary activities because these, these guys went through the war, uh, they drew closer to the Lord, and they began visiting other countries for a variety of bad reasons. And uh, they went to other countries and understood that uh, they needed to be more culturally sensitive and to reach out to other countries as missionaries. In fact, there was a whole Bible college movement that started as a result of the post-World War II uh, evangelicals, and they were characteristically premillennial, like Dallas Theological Seminary, where Darrell teaches, Talbot Theological Seminary, where I teach, Moody Bible Institute, even though they may not have been founded, they were greatly influenced uh, by a lot of these soldiers who were on the GI Bill and um, eventually became leaders, missionaries, and pastors. And so that next generation was raised on the horrors of the Holocaust. So it wasn't just prophecy and eschatology uh, that moved them. It was also this, this, and these are a pretty hard group to survey because most of them are dead. Uh, but, but, but some of them are around. And if, if you're like me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm more of a historian that uses archival research. And so, you know, I'm not limited to surveys. I, I, I get a lot of good information from dead people, you know. And, and so the, this really impacted. So, one needs to sort of then ask the question, which I think is is arises from all that you've worked so hard to determine. So from my point of view, the traditional evangelical worldview in general of the last 50 years is declining and changing. And that's really important. And these fundamental values, which form the building blocks of the worldview of these uh, boomer evangelicals and previous and great generation uh, uh, folks uh, drive, uh, they drive vision, you know, the, the, those building blocks of our world grew and, and, and they drive vision uh, or they drove vision that was sort of theologically intertwined. But a lot of that vision for the new generation has been driven by the social issues of the day, which are not the Holocaust. It's other things. Uh, and this would, this would include how evangelicals will relate to Israel. Israel was part of the old evangelical worldview, theologically, from the, from the Holocaust, for a lot of reasons. And the Jewish people, um, the love for Israel and the Jewish people is an expectation on the part of boomer and great generation evangelical parents and so younger evangelicals are supposed to, by the whole evangelical cultural worldview agenda, which is not only theological, it's also social. And the next generation, uh, millennials, Gen, Gen X, millennials, and 
Z and onward and upward, you know, they they don't have the same experiences. And Israel does not have a role as in the same way that it had with the older evangelicals. And people like Daryl and I, where we're trying to help evangelicals become more pro-Jewish and pro-Israel and stand against anti-Semitism and all these kinds of things, uh, and, and, and bluntly to share the good news of Jesus with Jewish people. They need to be motivated by our heart for Jewish people. But, but the problem is, is they're not embracing the worldview of their parents or their grandparents. And so by assuming that they would, we will we'll lose the Israel battle in trying to get younger evangelicals to re-recognize or to re-embrace the worldview of, pre- of previous generations. So trying to better explain our worldview, which includes a heart for Israel and supporting Israel, with our young people is never going to work. It just won't work because they're not in the same place. It's a different generation, different generations. If I may add to to what uh, Mitch is saying, one of the moderating influences that we found in the young evangelicals data was that uh, those young evangelicals that perceived that Israel treats Palestinians fairly were significantly more supportive of Israel in the Israeli-Palestinian dispute than those who perceived that Israel was unfairly treating the Palestinians. And so the reason why I mention this is this is one area where we can uh, enhance uh, evangelical support for Israel among the young people by showing uh, more coherently uh, all of the things that Israel do to uh, does to be inclusive of the uh, Israeli Arabs, uh, of the uh, you know fair and just treatment of the Palestinians in the Palestinian territories. Um, Th- that could be partially corrected. Um, of course, that does not. That I'm not saying that everything that Israel does in the occupied territories is fair and just. Uh, but uh, it seems that young evangelicals are responsive to those types of messages, and that they will uh, adjust their view or reevaluate their view of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute if they hear more about that. We, but this, we need, this narrative we, we need, of victim and and aggressor is really important. It's true, and 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 you both are completely correct in saying that the uh, the the sort of the, the image of who is an aggressor has changed mm-hmm. uh, with these uh, more recent generations. Another thing that really changed about the evangelical community more recently is that. Uh, the community has become more diverse ethnically and racially. And as a result, uh, the perception of uh, an aggressor has also been more frequently attached to the Jewish people and to Israel uh, because it comes uh, from African-Americans or Latino respondents that see themselves as people of color, uh, much more closely aligned to the Palestinians, who they also see as people of color, whereas they're essentially viewing, not all of them, but some of them are viewing uh, the Jewish people as privileged whites. So some of the racial dynamics of American political discourse also infiltrate one's views of the Israeli-Palestinian Absolutely. Absolutely. That's fascinating. Listen, we're running out of time, so let me ask Mitch one final question. I need this to be kind of concise, but uh, what can we do to encourage more support for Israel and Jewish people among evangelicals? I mean, uh, 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 Kirill has perhaps suggested one thing, and that is to get the story out a little better about a more balanced uh, portrayal of how Israel handles uh, Palestinians and, and Arabs in 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 the areas that they control. But uh, but what else? Well, one thing we need to, use to do is we need to get young people speaking to young people. Because if not, then people are going to just rebel against their parents. And uh, so we need to get, we need to help young people uh, be encouraged them to speak to younger people. 
I 100% agree with Curiel, and that comes out of the research. And that is, I think we need to help um, present a biblical worldview that is ethical and to have older evangelicals just poo-pooing all issues of social justice is a big mistake. That's going to serve to our detriment. And besides, we have a Messiah, Jesus, who was very concerned about social justice. And Moses told us to leave the four corners of the field uh, so that poor people could have food to eat. And uh, there were a lot of rules in the Old Testament in the Torah about treating the marginalized. So I think we need to root and ground uh, our social justice argumentation and worldview uh, building blocks that we're trying to offer in scripture rather than in sociology and politics. I think that that's going to have more of an appeal to young people who I think also our surveys uh, showed that the more people studied the Bible, the more they went to church. Uh, actually, the, the more seriously they took the biblical information and the more they seriously they took the pastors. Fi- finally, I think that uh, it's going to be uh, really important uh, to try and listen to uh, younger people. I think that we, we just we just presume and assume that we are the ones that older ones that they should listen to and just do what we tell them to do. That is a no, that is a non-starter. And, uh, and so we must uh, get young people motivated, give them good information to argue back as Kirill just suggested. And, uh, and there are plenty of great arguments, but we have to watch our tone. We have to make sure that we're more embracing, uh, more kind and, um, and that we're standing for justice in the way that God sees, views justice in Scripture. And uh, that might mean that sometimes we have to separate ourselves a little bit from our parents and our grandparents, uh, who can be actually very kind and very, I mean, World Vision was created by people from a previous generation. It's one of the greatest evangelical organizations that does all sorts of good things uh, for people. So it's not that evangelical older Christians do not care. It's just that there's a presumption of worldview inheritance that we need to scrap. We have to go back to the beginning and help our younger people come to these conclusions from scripture and from their own context and culture. And that's the only way to win the Israel battle, I think. Well, I want to thank you all for taking the time to um, walk us through what you all are doing, uh, have been doing, are doing, and will be doing. Uh, I want to welcome Modi and Kareel to the to the rabbit hole, which they apparently are still uh, navigating, and we trust that you'll navigate it well. Thank you, Mitch, for, for your help in this, and uh, we thank you for joining us on the table, and we hope you'll join us again soon. If you you want to see other uh, episodes of The Table, you can go to voice.dts.edu and hit the podcast tab, and you can get a look at over 350 hours of, of discussions that we have that we've produced over the last 10 years. We're now hitting our 10-year anniversary, and so it, it uh, it's quite an archive. Some of them delve in, the, in some of the very areas that we've talked about, Israel and eschatology. You're more than welcome to do so, and we thank you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.